Hello, and welcome to the third season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guests today are Tom Gualtieri and David Sisko. Tom and David met in 2003 at the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop, where they are ongoing members. Together, they wrote Falling to Earth, which received a workshop production at Syracuse University New Play Workshop, was part of the York Theater's Developmental Reading Series, and was featured at Nautilus Music Theater's Rough Cuts Reading Series. They are currently collaborating with book writer Michael Zam on a musical adaptation of Henry James's The Wings of the Dove. Tom's That Play, A Solo Macbeth, received a Drama Desk Award nomination for Unique Theatrical Experience. David is a voice teacher and the founder and president of ContemporaryMusicalTheater.com. We're going to talk today about the everyman in musical theater. Hi, Tom and David. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Shoshana. It's so nice to finally talk to you. Great. And I'm so glad to, uh, to be with you again. Wonderful. David is a returning guest. Um, you might remember him from two episodes ago when we were talking about contemporary musical theater. Um, but before we get into our topic for today, we'll start with our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? Well, um, I, the first show I ever saw was The Magic Show. Uh, music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. It was a pretty big hit. I think it ran for over 1,900 performances. Um, Doug Henning, Dale Souls, who we know from several recent shows, Anita Morris, and the original Cogsworth from Disney's film Beauty and the Beast, oh, David Ogden's yeah. Steers. I saw Cats um, when I was in middle school. And um, I much preferred seeing HMS Pinafore <laughs> um, at Glimmerglass Opera when I was in middle school. That was more my jam than, um, I, I, as I said last time, I, I still don't understand Cats, um, the musical. But, um, but I loved HMS Pinafore. Nice. Um, which musical has had the greatest impact on you? I got introduced to Into the Woods my senior year of high school, thanks to my amazing AP English teachers, Patricia Kimball and Robin Etkin. Um, and I think it was the first time that I understood that a musical could both be really funny, but also be filled with uh, pathos. I had a similar experience, David, where um, you know I learned that musicals could be serious. Uh, because, uh, you know, The Wizard of Oz on TV, a somewhat serious story, right? A some uh, hero's journey story. But I don't think I realized that musicals could have a kind of darkness that so many contemporary musicals have now. Um, so West Side Story was the first time I saw a musical where I realized that um, it was sort of dealing with I don't want to say horror in the world in the sense of horror film, but but darkness and and uh, the dark aspects of humanity. Uh, I was watching it. I remember with a cousin. I was pretty young. I was probably like six or seven, and uh, my cousin was older than me. And I remember during the rumble, 
saying, oh, what is a musical? So nobody dies, right? <laughs> he was like, oh. <laughs> you know? so it was pretty it was pretty impactful yeah. and, it's, and it's remained impactful for me because the the story um my family are italian immigrants and i've always related to the puerto rican characters in the show because all of my family my grandfather and his brothers and sisters all worked in the the garment industry and sweatshops and like anita and her friends in the dress shop always reminded me of my aunts and um it it's interesting. I really, I really felt a kinship to that show because being both an American growing up in a mostly white neighborhood and having a family of immigrants, I felt like the show combined two important aspects of my own life. If you were to require our president or government leaders to see one musical, which one would you have them see? One of the issues in the United States right now is a, is a disrespect a lack of respect for the arts and a disrespect toward it and i think that when art touches people it changes them so i went for a choice that was less overtly political and less um less of a polemic and more of uh, an entertainment um i think the light in the piazza is one of the most beautiful musicals in the last 20 years and I think when someone from the political world can feel elevated by art, they recognize how art can change things. So I would sit them down in front of a musical that's exceptional in, in its form. And I think The Light in the Piazza does that because it's a very human mm. story. You know, it's, and it's the human story change people. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you should say that. I wouldn't think of that show either as a show like that would change people. I went to see the reunion concert uh, a few years ago now, and when I sat down next to the person next to me, I had a lot of bags. A guy next to me was so rude to me and was saying, you need to go put those bags in. The show was starting, and he was like, you need to go put those bags in the locker. Like, you, you can't have all those bags. And I sat back down to start act two and he turns to me and he says, um, I am so sorry that I, that I spoke to you that way. Um, completely apologize. But I've never had someone then like apologize to me. And I was like, I have to, the first act of light in the piazza must have changed him. Like it really, I was like, I have to credit Light in the Piazza for that change of heart. So it's funny that you should mention, she should say that, because I felt like I feel like I did experience firsthand the power of that musical to to soften people, to change them. Yeah, I think when something tells a human story, it really can move people. I I chose the Wrong Man mm. by Ross Golan, um, which played off Broadway uh, yeah, at the yeah. MCC Theater. Um, and for those who know it uh, or don't know it, it's um, about a man who's framed for the murder of a woman. And the musical really highlights racism, domestic violence, and our broken criminal justice system. Um, I was really moved by this uh, piece. And I, I think that uh, it has a message that uh, is, of course, uh, particularly resonant right now, um, given what we're experiencing in the world. What's your favorite musical that no one else has heard of it's not that nobody's heard of this but um but i think it's it's a lesser known piece radioactive which is by Will reynolds and um eric price 
It's about uh, Marie and uh, Pierre Curie, who discovered radium. And what I've heard of the score, um, you can find some great YouTube clips um, uh, of it, um, some orchestrated pieces of it on, on YouTube. Uh, it's completely worth checking out. Um, it's very, very exciting writing. And it mm. makes me think actually very much of Light in the Piazza in terms of the, the, uh, the, the craft, uh, craftsmanship and the orchestration. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's something that I find myself going back to and wanting to hear more of. My choice is the musical that some people have heard of. I think the deep state musical theater people know it, but not, not many other. Um, Fanny, uh, with music and lyrics by Harold Rome. Um, it has a beautiful score. The songs are wonderful. I think the story is really problematic by today's standards, um, but the music is really sublime. Um, and it has wonderful funny moments, and it's moving, and um, it starred Florence Henderson originally on Broadway. What is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible to get to. Chuck Cooper singing the role of the bus, announcing the death of John F. Kennedy in Carolina Change. Uh, it's probably one of the moments in that show that um, is, is the most memorable to me. Um, and I know I mentioned it last time, but it's worth mentioning again. I think it's, it is such a powerful moment in the theater. Mm. It is mm. probably one of my top five moments um, mm. of things that I have seen in the musical that moved me profoundly. My, my answer, I think, is a little less <clears throat> on the emotional side and more on the intellectual one, which is that um, in Sweeney Todd, the little priest, the end of the first act, is so complex because we have layers of feelings about the things that are going on, as well as the fact that our, our minds are thinking forward in the show, like we know what's going on and what's going to happen and we sense what might happen. And I think on the one hand, you're really rooting for Sweeney because he kind of deserves his revenge. But then he and Mrs. Lovett decide to do this awful thing <laughs> and we're laughing at it at the same time, right? So there's a sense of weird satisfaction at them getting their own satisfaction out of their anger at the world, both of them. She's, she's a capitalist, right? So she's, you know, she's out to make money. And she becomes sort of the symbolism of, of capitalism cannibalizing its own profits or, or capitalizing its own buyers. Right. So they they eat the world. They decide to eat people. I mean, <laughs> or to serve people up. Right. And we're thinking both on an intellectual level of how terrible that is. And also that it's kind of funny because some people deserve it. <laughs> you know, And, you know, they're doing something bad. You know, there's a tr there's a tragic ending in the works and that they both also deserve to be punished for doing it. But you kind of want them to do it for a little while. So it's that moral gray area. And the fact that we laugh at it is because we find some satisfaction in it as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really complex set of circumstances that takes you through a musical that's full of legitimate horror. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, no, I love that that moment in Sweeney Todd. I think is actually my favorite moment of that show. I love the end of that song, and I think there's also another layer of uh, Mrs. Lovett and her relationship with Sweeney, and how she wants yeah. like that whole wanting his attention and yeah. finally bringing him over to her side. Um, so like you have this moment and I think that kind of adds a little emotional layer too, where you see her like finally getting like him in a way. Like she wants. Yeah. In addition. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it's like this moment of both of them, like, like, but her specifically really getting exactly what she wants in that moment. And you're right. It's like so satisfying. Um, well, great. Let's get on to move on to our topic, which is the everyman in musical theater. So um, I know um, this is a subject that you guys have been working with um, in your own in your own project. Um, so why don't we start, I guess, talking about talking about your project a little bit, um, just so we have the context of that. Well, Draw the Circle Wide is a video project where we are trying to raise awareness about the need for diversity and representation in the theater. And uh, the way we do that is we interview performers from um, communities that are typically underrepresented in the theater. We're looking at trying to expand who we look at as the everyman. We typically see white people in most stories, and that's been true for a very long time. So people of other races, other abilities, other genders have had to look at white people, white, straight, cisgender people, and make the translation in their head or heart when they're watching a story. And we think that representation, we all know, is, is vital. We're, we're lacking it in a, in a great many areas of the arts. But in the musical theater, we feel like we need to see more of everyone. And it may be time for, not maybe, it is time for white people to look at other people on stage and have to translate those experiences in their head. It creates empathy, diversity in the theater in all areas, gender, race, um, gender identity, um, ability or disability needs to be fostered and needs to blossom. Through this video series, um, you know, Tom and I are white, cisgender, um, gay men. Uh, we have wanted to use this video project as a way of, um, of sitting back and listening to, um, to these beautiful artists. Uh, and just to be clear, our first season includes uh, Ali Stroker, um, Cindy Chung, uh, Ryan Redmond, and Jonathan Burke. And, and out of those stories, we create a, a piece for them um, that we're actually in the process of, of releasing because of uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. We were unable to record their songs to be part of the, the video series that we released um, earlier this, um, this spring. But we'll be releasing the songs uh, over the summer. And I think that listening to other people's stories is what's missing in the theater because we've seen stories from the same perspective for so long. From that, I know 
we've had you've had a a lot of time to think about the idea of the everyman um and so it it is interesting to think back and look at how the everyman is used in musical theater um over time so uh yeah let's start with what what is an everyman and what is that idea david would you agree if i say that the everyman is um basically a stand-in for the audience. The everyman is a kind of normal, everyday person who faces extraordinary challenges. Totally. The goal is that the audience sees themselves through this character. Uh, I can think of a dozen examples, you know, from TV and film over the, over the, in the 20th century. Um, but the everyman is, is us, essentially. Yeah, I was um, looking up traits of the everyman and some things that were listed were like uh especially from a more contemporary everyman from like the last century uh mm-hmm. an ordinary humble character someone who's benign um usually middle or working class another thing it listed was that they typically avoid engagement uh in they react ambivalently until the situation gets more dire and then they have to uh, react or avert disaster. So it's kind of like a, not the hero who is like, yes, I will go fight. You know, it's more of like, you know, someone who's, you know, not going to go rush into danger um, right away. Right. Um, it's right. interesting. I was on um, tvtropes.com looking at their definition of every man. And on the, the top of the page, it had this lyric from, uh, night song from the musical Golden Boy uh, up, Uptown Just Another Joe Downtown Where Are You Gonna Go um, so I was like this is on TV tropes but uh, um, I just thought that was a uh, cool that they pulled that lyric somebody pulled that lyric to put there um, but it is I, uh, Golden Boy is about uh, a, a guy who um, especially in Night Song is about uh, this guy who lives in Harlem and he's kind of talking about his race you know he's a black man and you know uptown he's like kind of like uptown he is the everyman surrounded by his you know fellow you know black community and but then downtown he becomes not the everyman anymore Uptown, just another Joe. Downtown, where you gonna go? Always. You know, the everyman is an archetype, right? Mm-hmm. Just as the ingenue is an archetype. And when we're looking at these archetypes, so often, like, for instance, if we talk about the ingenue, um, in musical theater, Peggy Sawyer in 42nd Street, Mar- uh, Maria in Sound of Music, Christine Daae in Phantom of the Opera, Clara Johnson in Le- The Light in the Piazza. And then we think of the women who have originated those roles and the women who have uh, mostly uh, played them. We're, we're similarly talking about white cisgender women, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it is... It's the, it's the same thing. So the fact that um, they chose to lift up um, a character uh, 
who is black mm-hmm. um, is, I think, really powerful. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's something that um, we need. It's just something that needs to be um, looked at more. Mm-hmm. Golden Boy was '64. You know, in the '60s, with the um, you know with integration and desegregation happening in the '50s, moving us into a new era in the '60s. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Diane Carroll in No Strings. And then so after that, you would have had uh, Golden Boy a couple of years later with Sammy Davis Jr. So I think you're right. There was a there was some shift in cultural consciousness that was allowing us to see um, people of color in leading roles. Uh, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein tended to be at the forefront of that, I think, um, even though, again, we're talking about white people writing about people of color. Um, there was an attempt, I think a very strong attempt to do the right thing, even when, by today's standards, those things may be either quaint or even offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Rodgers and Hammerstein were were working towards something that we are seeing a sort of apotheosis of now. You know, like Tommy and Brigadoon really strikes me as the kind of every man that you described based on what you read on the internet. Like, <laughs> someone wasn't willing to take action who is kind of living in the moment and he's forced into action by something mm-hmm. right he's tommy's really just an everyday joe right and um tony also in west side story would be with that that character and, and mm-hmm. curly in oklahoma in mm-hmm. a sense you know he doesn't he doesn't he's just living his life until he realizes that um that Lori is in danger mm-hmm We've kind of already touched on this, but the concept of the everyman kind of changing as we move in musical theater, as we move through kind of the decades, it's um, especially in the 60s and 70s, taking on people of color or, you know, different types of people becoming becoming the everyman. Over time, we do see a change of who who we think of as this kind of everyman character um like eventually we get to uh you know usnavi and in the heights and uh uh which is kind of like that everyman narrator character who um may not be like the main character uh it's not their story but they kind of are the everyman in the story um i think uh like caroline is a great example Mm-hmm. Caroline, Caroline, or change. She doesn't want things to change, and things are changing around her. You know, I mean, that's you know, and she's certainly the center of that story, right? Um, yeah, I think that's a really good example, David, because she's she's clearly a, a working stiff, right? She's an everyday person. She's a working class person, like so many working class people in the nation. Yeah, um, in this story blackness is very important to the story um but she's somebody that doesn't want to change like you said right so she's forced into change which is interestingly the whole crux of that show Mm -hmm. if we're we're talking about how the everyman is changing um i think it expands into other types i think it expands beyond just the everyman you know if we're looking at usnavi being an everyman or matilda in matilda or um Alphabet in Wicked, right? So we're looking at people that are broadening out beyond the um, beyond the white, straight, cisgender male. Um, 
and in Head Over Heels, which I thought was a wonderful, adorable show. I, I just thought it was so funny and charming and ridiculous, and it was meant to be. You know, I think it set out to do what it wanted to do. But in that show, they cast um, a curvy actress as the romantic lead. Um, so she wasn't the lead character. She wasn't really the everyman, but she was um, the romantic uh, character. She was the sexual character. Uh, she was the character that all the men and women desired. And I thought that was fascinating because that was a big shift for me because it wasn't a joke. Mm-hmm. We weren't meant to laugh at her. We were meant to laugh with her about her own foibles because she had, you know, she was kind of um, full of herself, you know, and it's a really fun character. But for, the, for anyone who went into the show and maybe laughed at first at the character being curvy, but also portrayed as a figure of sexual desire, they would have been won over by the end of the show, by the fact that this is legitimate. She was so, the character is very firm about who she is. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I think that really charmed me about that show. Uh, Because the show is bent on breaking stereotypes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in a a very strange way in that show, everyone is the everyman. All the Mm -hmm. characters are the everyman. Right. Uh, We're following the Alex Socha character as the lead. Mm -hmm. But we in each of the characters right so i mean i think that's something to celebrate in how we're seeing writers begin to write um and and branching out in in terms of um telling different stories from uh people of different backgrounds just different perspectives Mm -hmm. one of the things that tom and i um are have noticed that has lagged behind are are black indigenous actors of color embodying everyman characters that have already been um, that are part of our canon um, where race is not a central issue to the plot of the show um, and I think this is something that um, we need to continue to have conversations about and this goes uh, for actors with disabilities as well and um, um, other uh, Actors who have, I think, for too long been considered on the fringe of our industry, of our community. Um, you know, we had the pleasure, as I said earlier, of interviewing Allie Stroker for our series. And, of course, she played Edo Annie in Oklahoma. And we talked about how Allie being cast in that particular role, where ability or disability is not even mentioned, furthers the narrative for the community she represents and it necessarily expands the audience's mind about the universality of the human experience. Mm-hmm. We're um, not only uh, expanding the, the everyman, but we're also allowing our talented um, community, uh, full community, to embody these roles. Um, embody these everman roles Mm -hmm. it is interesting like when something is just not in the text like that kind of opens it up for really anybody of you know across the board to uh play those parts so now we've we've gone through the change and we're 
of the changing every man and we're up to today who do we see kind of in musical theater today as the every man we've already mentioned some examples well one thing that i see is um the every man in contemporary musical theater being a much more complex and flawed human being mm-hmm. um and i think I think actually uh, Usher in A Strange Loop uh, is a great example of that. Yeah. Um, I I appreciate so so much about that show, but I uh, I appreciate that Michael R. Um, Jackson doesn't um, let his characters off the hook mm-hmm. um, easily, and I think the same can be said of. Evan and Dear Evan Hansen, mm-hmm. a deeply flawed teenager who makes bad decision after bad decision, right? And <laughs> and um, and yet is making these decisions clearly out of a place of of his own pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I think because of that, whether or not we are rooting for them, we 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 empathize. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, um, and I, uh, especially that um, that scene between Evan and his mother um, at the end of the show is uh, just devastating. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 that's what I see is changing mm-hmm. in terms of how we see the Everyman in contemporary terms. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when um you mentioned Dear Evan Hansen where I hadn't I had kind of like the opposite reaction watching that show where I I saw him as being written as kind of an everyman character but I felt like I don't I felt like an alienation almost cuz I was like I this is not me. I I don't connect with this portrayal of the of this kind of universal like everyman character in him. So I kind of felt like an opposite, like this this musical is not for me, kind of, kind of thing. But I actually, you know, this just comes to me. There's something in that that is also wonderful mm-hmm. because I think what it does is it challenges us to understand and see ourselves in characters and see see where we rub up against those characters mm-hmm. and ask ourselves why. Right. You know, and I, I think that that is um, that's something that uh, that is very powerful and has, has really changed when we look at you know Golden Age to today. Mm-hmm. We're we're looking at characters who um, you know are in some in some cases not likable. Mm-hmm. And I think in the twenty in twentieth century musical theater writing, and even in Hollywood, and and basic uh, entertainment in in the 20th century um the presumed experience was the white male cisgender straight european experience Mm -hmm. the the experience of the patriarchy and as we expand beyond that i think we are going to rub up against characters that aren't like us and as other communities in the world 
begin to come into their own strength and power, they're also going to rebel against the portrayal of a, an Evan Hansen as the everyman, right? They're going to say, that's not me. And that's mm-hmm. okay. Like David is saying, it challenges us. Right. Looking toward the future in a way, what can we write going forward? Because it's important that people tell their own stories, we as writers, nobody of any of any race, gender, or ability wants to be stuck only writing about the thing they know, mm-hmm. right? They always say you should write what you know, but I've always understood that to mean what you understand, what you feel, mm-hmm. rather than the actual lived experience. Right. So when we're writing a song for Allie, you know, we had a very distinct conversation with both Allie and Cindy Chung, actually, about not writing about exactly who they were. Naturally, we were writing songs that were fiction, but with Allie, she was like, you don't need to keep pointing to the wheelchair for me to be able to sing this song. Mm-hmm. She also said something that I thought was really beautiful and generous. She said, I want other people to be able to sing this song, too. Um, so she was pointing toward a universal experience that um, happened to be being experienced by this character in a wheelchair mm-hmm. in, the, in the song that we're writing. So I think what David and I are looking for is how to write for people beyond our own life experience and still draw their experiences into the storytelling. Yeah, it sounds like the everyman character is the at least the old way of thinking about it is falling away or has already fallen away and we're seeing all kinds of different every men uh, every women or even just protagonists that um kind of even just fit a different mold so it's it's very encouraging to see that kind of change over time i'm heartened by the conversations that we have been had by our community in the last week and we will continue to have um and for um for the change that will continue to come because of those conversations Mm -hmm. i think that um we are moving forward and i think the theater and the arts in general um are always uh, ahead of in many respects ahead of society um in in moving these types of conversations along but we're also too far behind and and i think that um that's something that we're aware of as right as a, as a writing team and something that we want we want to be a part of that conversation well let's move on to uh the why is this so good section we're going to be talking yeah. about fable from the light in the piazza so why did you guys pick this song for Why Is This So Good? Tom, you start. All right, I'll start with it. Um, well, Lamp Beyonce is like my favorite musical in the last 20 years. Um, I think the music and the writing is is uh, just top drawer. The score is really um, challenging and melodic at the same time. Um, but I, I'm thinking about it from a lyrical standpoint, from the point of view of the lyrics. Um, Gettel is writing in like a poetic vein. The um, traditional thinking about lyrics is that you need to understand them the first time you hear them. So you go to the, you go to a show, you're sitting in the dark, you're listening, 
the words need to land on you the first time. So if they're too complicated or too poetic, you get behind and then you can't catch up with the show because you're wondering, what does this mean? And then you miss a beat. Um, but with fable, it's operating on a poetic and an emotional level. Um, so it manages what I think is a, a neat trick of bringing you along emotionally, even if the metaphor doesn't hit you instantly. Um, and the music and the lyrics, I think, work both in this way because the, the music has this sweeping romantic feel to it, but there's a lot of other stuff going on underneath it and it's pulling you along emotionally. So in, in Fable, um, he, he gives Margaret a, like a list of metaphor, uh, a list of, I should say, he gives Margaret a list of metaphors. Um, in the first, I think in the first stanza, she says, you can look in the forest for a secret field, for a golden arrow, for a prince to appear. And this is all the thing that represents love right it represents the dream it represents the thing that changes you that brings you into your adult life you can look in the forest for a secret field for a golden arrow for a prince to appear for a fable of love that will last forever and I think those images are so beautiful and poetic and maybe they, they hit you in some way when you hear them. Um, and when you listen to the song again or you start to read through it again, it starts to land on you in a different way. It gets you even deeper into the meaning of the song. Um, I could pull out any lyric from the song and point to why I think it's so beautiful. Um, but she she goes along on this idea of the metaphor of love, right? You can look in the ruins for a wishing well, for a magic apple, for a charioteer, and it crashes right up against her own cynicism, her own disappointment in love. She wants something for her daughter, but her own experience has taught her that love is a fake and a fable, right? So now you have the other side of the fable. You have the dark part of the fable, not the hopefulness of it. And she turns in the middle of the song. She, she goes to that dark place and then she rejects it, knowing that love may not work out, knowing that her daughter may be disappointed. She says, still you have to look and look. She says, look nine times. Still you have to look and look and look and look. It's so beautiful because it just keeps raising her level of hope for her daughter. Just a children's fairy tale. Still you have to song is one of the most beautiful 11 o'clock numbers in a musical ever because it takes you on a really full emotional journey um it's like soliloquy in carousel only it's at the end of the show and it it sends us off on kind of a high um because that last stanza kills me you have to look for the eyes on a bridge in a pouring rain 
not the eyes, but the part you can't explain for the arms you could fall into forever. I mean, that is, that's just gold. Yeah. Uh, what's so interesting to me, Tom, is that, you know, you were um, lifting up, uh, you can look in the forest for a secret field. So this is so poetic and beautiful, right? But yeah. what's happening underneath that is kind of this Sondheimian quarter note vamp, piano vamp. Uh-huh. Which to me um, represents kind of this banality of daily <laughs> life. So there's this there's this uh, this tension in it that then gets released into this rhapsodic B section, um, mm-hmm. which then represents the dream of what could be, which is, you know, what we see Margaret struggling with, mm-hmm. you know, throughout, um, throughout the entire show. We see her re-experiencing this place that she went to on her honeymoon mm-hmm. and falling in love with it again and remembering the love that she had with her husband and yet also knowing the great divide between them, not just geographically at the moment, yeah. you know, and yeah. so... Um, so that tension is so powerful. Um, I am a music nerd. I tried to, I, I don't have the score for this song, but I tried to figure out the structure of it. And oh. I think, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I think it's A, A, B, B, A, C, B, B, C ish. Uh-huh. Form follows function. Right? Yeah. That the idea that that, okay, this is not an AABA song, okay, fine. Right, but right. there's still there's definite structure in place. Right. Even though it's skewed, you know, like he, he changes the, um, the meter um, in, the, in the A sections. In the B sections, they're ellipsed. There's seven measures rather than eight. So you mm-hmm. always feel just a little off. Uh, it's a little off-center, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that serves the emotional tenor of the song because there's tension in it because yes. yeah because there's this divide which is dividing day is one of the songs in the show right there's this divide between what she wants for clara and what she believes to be true based on her own experience right right, right. and to, then just some other um music geek things to to share um like obviously the 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 glissando harp that we hear um, several times over the course of the show and to hear it here and then followed by this, this sting of the strings and my, the, the line that kind of, I was a wreck before the song even started because there's, there's a line that Clara says, I can't leave you. And Margaret says, yes, you can. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, the song has even, I can't even talk about it without right. getting emotional. So, <laughs> so there's that. Right, and as we said, this tension between the the mundane and the the, the dream, um, and the recapitulation of the light in the piazza at the end, and the fact that the tension that we have experienced, that push and pull throughout the entire song, gets released in a statement Clara has shared with us at the beginning of Act Two, 
is so powerful to me. I also just want to lift up Victoria Clark's performance. I, this is the only show I've ever seen three times. I've never seen a Broadway show three times. I've done other shows twice. I saw this three times because I, I clearly was so moved by it. And I was, this is one of the other top five performances, uh, Broadway mm. performances I've ever, ever seen of this particular song. Because she's so, um, she was so emotionally and vocally grounded mm-hmm. in her performance. I have, I've never experienced a performer literally just tears running down their face and yet singing in such an open and glorious way so grounded in um in their in their being um and what that allowed um how the, that allowed the character to shine through was beautiful to me i also want to lift up this piece because of the writing the writing for the voice uh as a voice teacher i'm very passionate about that get also trained singer and so this is such a boon for what i would call contemporary legit singing this show yeah um, and the fact that it's had this wonderful life uh, of crossover between um, the um, the theater and uh, opera, I think is is wonderful. I think that's that's also an area that Tom and I um, aspire to 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 live in. Mm-hmm. And Margaret, by the way, is an every woman. She's an everyday person mm-hmm. who's experiencing something that forces her into a change right that forces her to take action um so that's that's a nice little (laughs) tie-in yeah definitely um yeah i mean i love everything you guys have said about this song um i i do love like adam gettle is such a poetic lyricist like uh, all Mm -hmm. around um and it's so it's so interesting to just look at the lyrics on the page and there is that change in the character Um, but it's not like, I mean, it is explicitly in the lyrics when she says no, no, but it's, it's not, it's not like explicitly like, um, you know, like this is what I thought and now this is what I think now it's, it's very much told in these, in these metaphors that you mention. We're experiencing it at the same time she's experiencing it. So the character doesn't have an opportunity to go back and say, I used to think this, and now I think this, right? right? Her her thinking just changes in the middle of the song. She makes the decision, Mm -hmm. which is an example of showing and not telling, right? In drama, you want to see it happen. And we see it, feel it right in the middle of the song. So her metaphors shift. But while you look, you are changing, turning. You're a well of wishes, you're a fallen Yeah, it's all in those metaphors. Um, and it is interesting, like, because this, I mean, this is really, you know, Margaret, Margaret's um, story, in a way, this show. Because Clara, I mean, Clara and has 
issues to work out for sure, but she and Fabrizio, they're in, they're in love the first moment they see each other in Act 1. There's really, like, not much more to their love. They have the, they have to work things out, sure, but, like, that, that's, that's done. That, that's taken care of. It's really Margaret's, um, journey with that love that is what we're following. So it's, um, so it's, um, you know, this is like that climactic, that climactic moment where, yeah, that we're experiencing that struggle within her. Clara is a catalyst for Margaret's change. Mm-hmm. The story about Margaret letting go as yeah. much as it is about Clara falling in love, right? So Margaret has to let go of her old relationship. She has to let go of her daughter. Mm-hmm. She has to let go of her old ideas, yeah. right? So she, it's her growing and changing it's about her finding her light in the piazza just the way clara finds margaret has to find her own they're not very complicated words um no no, you're right about that and that that goes back to what tom was saying that it, it allows the listener to to take them in and and receive them while also allowing them to kind of it's one of those songs that, that you, I, you know, you keep on hearing it and listening to it and it just goes to deeper and deeper and deeper places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think that speaks to any, I think any, hopefully any piece of art does that. Yeah. And any it's, piece. it's interesting. <laughs> you were talking about the kind of like the irregularity of the, the piece in terms of the music and the measures, but also just looking at it on the page, like, and, thinking about it um even the rhymes schemes are irregular like the um just where the rhymes fall isn't always the same um <laughs> as you go through uh, so a very uh, occasionally something matches up like uh but it uh that kind of grounds you a little bit but um like it's not there's very few rhymes and then they aren't always the same in the same spots. Um, yeah. It's a fascinating piece because it really does feel weirdly off kilter mm-hmm. and yet it has a logic of it. It has a logic of its own. Yeah. And I love that. Um, there's that steady, you were talking about music wise that there's that steady kind of quarter note beat, but then I love also there's like that. It's like a, a skipping or like, there's like an under um, accompaniment of uh, almost like a galloping on a horse or like a, a running of some sort that's going very fast. I almost feel like I'm in a fairy tale at some points of the song because I feel like I'm running, like it almost feels like I'm running through a field or like I'm I'm galloping on a horse, you know, <laughs> or something. I'm in this fable. I'm in this fairy tale. Fable of love that will carry you to a moon. Hidden stream, a lagoon and a red, a horizon dream, silhouette set away from time forever. To a valley beyond a setting sun, where water shines. Um, I think the orchestration, mm-hmm. you know, to the, the beauty of the orchestration and the way that um, I love how the um, the the dark it's like the darker woodwinds 
are the the a sections mm-hmm. like when she's talking about like where all those metaphor where a lot of the metaphors happen it's like that those darker color woodwinds and then when we get to the b sections which are filled with the kind of rhapsodic hope like that's that's the strings and that's like you know so yeah um i think i think uh, i think that's so astute and it 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 really um the orchestration lends itself to to that as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i you know shoshana i feel like that through the whole show mm-hmm. speaks to how i feel about musicals is that i feel like they need to put you in a different world um and i think the best musicals do that they they lift you up and they put you somewhere else mm-hmm. so yes even margaret is uh, and every woman um were in Florence in the 50s and the feeling of the show is this fable and I think all of the great musicals somehow put you somewhere else Great. So we'll just move on to something wonderful. So anything mm-hmm. um, upcoming or current music in musical theater, you know, musicals that might be on the horizon, books, events, um, anything that we're excited about or want to give a shout out to? Um, two things, I think. I was very excited for the revival of Company mm-hmm. um, with changing Bobby's gender and bringing in more diversity into the show. I think that's a really positive change and it speaks to Sondheim's willingness to look at old material and, and keep it fresh and bring it into the modern age. Um, but I also think it, that very thing points to where I want the theater to go, which is I don't see anything specific necessarily to point out, but I think that the protests and the sudden explosion of awareness, which I think has been magnified because we're on lockdown, because we've, we've had to focus, I think all of this is going to bring about a, a positive change in the theater. And I'm just very excited to see where that takes us to see where more diversity and representation in the theater bring us. Great. As for me, I'm the New York times has begun this new series called offstage, which debuted this past Thursday. Uh, it began actually with a uh, frank conversation about what it's like to be black on Broadway with performers, Celia Rose Gooding, uh, co-stars uh, Adrian Warren and Daniel J. Watts uh, from the Tina Turner musical and director Kenny Leon. Um, 
and there were also interviews and performances from some of this season's, uh, this past season's Broadway stars. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what else they do. I think it's it's a, a really wonderful way to continue dialogue and continue thinking about, um, as I said last time, how we consider theater uh, going forward, knowing that there are, there are so many changes to come, not just the logistical of all sitting down in a room again, but as I mentioned, um, with the protests, the, 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 the necessary change that's to come um, socially um, in, in our industry as well. Great. And I'll just add um, for my uh, picks, two things from former podcast guests that I've re- just listened to um, and watched. One is um, Jose Solis, who was a podcast guest uh, in last season, end of last season in the fall. Uh, his mm-hmm. um, podcast with Deep Tran, um, Token Theater Friends, is back up. Um, so I wanted to highlight that. I love how he talks about musical theater, so I'm always um, listening to him. And also another former podcast guest, Ella Rose Cherry. And her collaborator, Brandon James Gwynn, they wrote a musical to be performed um, uh, via, uh, it was was performed via, like, FaceTime, um, just, like, 24 minutes, uh, 24-minute musical done all, um, you know, remotely in everybody's apartments. Um, And it was really well done called how to survive the end of the world and i really enjoyed that as well thank you all for listening to this episode of scene to song scene to song will be going on a summer hiatus and will return in september in the meantime you can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater or if you'd like to be a podcast guest Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by taking a moment to rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at Scene2Song, and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. Have a wonderful summer, and be sure to check back in the fall for our next episode. Music